But first, BC's overdose crisis. Doesn't it seem just like one blow after another this year? Not only are COVID-19 case numbers on the rise, but overdose death statistics for last month are at a near record high. 175 overdose-related deaths were reported in July. That's just two fewer than what were reported in June. And compared to this time last year, that is a 136% increase from July 2019. To put this into context, 175 overdose-related deaths is more than the total number of deaths related to car accidents, suicides, homicides, and COVID-19 combined. BC's Dr. Bonnie Henry, our chief health officer, is a voice that we now commonly associate with updates on our province's pandemic response and daily statistics. But when more people are dying of drug overdoses than of COVID-19, Her voice becomes an important reminder that this problem was on her radar well before the pandemic even began. And as she said, these new stats today show that we are, as a province, are in fact not moving forward on this crisis. We are moving backwards. When we started this crisis here in British Columbia, naloxone, for example, was available by prescription only. So there are We have made progress, but we are clearly not where we need to be. And we have been, unfortunately, uh, moving backwards in terms of supporting people in this province and across the country. And that has been um, something that we have agreed that we need to, to tackle as quickly as we possibly can. The other lead voice that you've been hearing today as we go through BC's overdose statistics that were released earlier today is BC's Chief Coroner, Lisa LaPointe, who joins us now. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. 175 deaths. I know that's news that you don't want to be announcing today. It's just two less than the month before, but a near record, which is an incredibly grim milestone. It is, and uh, the numbers for July will likely increase over time as we get more results in. We we try to put our results out as quickly as possible, uh, but there will be some additional tests coming in, so we may see a higher number than 175, and that's actually the third uh, consecutive month where we've seen over 170 deaths due to drug toxicity in the province. And I'm assuming that we can say that there will be some of that predictability for what August holds as well then? It seems that way. One of the um, things that we've been noticing more recently in toxicology results is an increased uh, um, toxicity of the fentanyl. So uh, where we, you know, we would see a certain level before, we're now finding that the fentanyl is increasingly toxic and we are finding people who uh, use, whether they inhale or inject and die within moments. There's no time to call 911. There's no time to utilize naloxone. And that's why we're encouraging people, whatever they're using, whether it's methamphetamine, cocaine, or fentanyl, to have somebody there who's not using and will call 911, administer naloxone, and call 911 right away. That is absolutely terrifying that the Mm -hmm. fentanyl is more deadly now than it was when we first heard about this substance, considering at the time it seemed so frightening. Yes. Yeah, it is absolutely terrifying, and it's one of the reasons that we think uh, that we are seeing the increase in the deaths, the um, the increased toxicity of the fentanyl, um, reduced access to some of the uh, 
safe consumption sites and um, overdose prevention sites because of COVID-19. That, that's coming back. Uh, those are being staffed up again. But during the pandemic, when we were all self-isolating, there was less access. And, um, you know, people were staying home more, so they were much more at risk. But really, you know, what we continue to see, and we have seen all along for decades with respect to substance use, is the blaming and um, the shame and stigma that goes around with substance use. And that's really what we need to change as a province and as a country so that people um, will go for help for this problem, which is a medical issue, and that they are able to access treatment for a medical issue as opposed to the past, which was punitive responses. Right. What drugs were people most commonly using when they suffered a fatal overdose? So fentanyl is present in uh, virtually 85, close to 90% of this uh, overdoses that we see. And then about 50% of those who die also have cocaine on board, and about 33% also have methamphetamines on board. So we, we routinely see mixed drug toxicity. It's very seldom do we see only one substance. Um, so whether the people are using both at the same time knowingly or whether they're using um, cocaine that maybe is um, infiltrated with fentanyl um, or methamphetamine that contains fentanyl. We're not exactly sure. It's always a bit of a challenge because the the individual who used is now deceased. But it's very common to see mixed drug toxicity. And that's why we say if you're using cocaine, which um, doesn't respond to naloxone, um, make sure you have Narcan present and make sure somebody's able to use it because it is very possible that you will suffer a fentanyl overdose. What demographic is most at risk here, or is there one demographic that's more at risk? Yeah, it continues to be males, and um, that's historic. Men have always been overrepresented uh, in the fatality data for drug overdose, and it continues to be uh, more um not youth. Youth, fortunately, represent less than 2% of those who are dying of substance-related uh, harms, and that's re- re- really good. We're very happy about that. So it tends to be uh, certainly 19 to 59, but people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and we're seeing an increase in older um, people. I mean, I hesitate to say 50 is old, but um, men in their 50s, oh, we're, now, we're now seeing the um, number of those uh, people dying more often. Do you have any reason that you know of as, as to why? Well, um, isolation is, is a huge factor because we know that using alone is a significant risk for death. And um, there is, again, to reiterate, as you know, a lot of shame around substance use and people hide it from their families and their families have maybe struggled with their substance use disorder for years. Uh, They hide it from their their families, uh, maybe their friends. They certainly don't want to lose their job because of their substance use. So there's a lot of using alone and um, that certainly puts people at risk. Actually, coming up next on the show, we're going to speak to a fellow that I know that you know, Guy Felicello, who is a former heroin addict who's overdosed six times. It took a lot of hard work, but he was able to turn his life around, and now he is an advocate. But, you know, whether it comes from the relationship that you have with him or just dealing with, with other individuals who are suffering from drug addictions who are trying to overcome that stigma, I'm sure that you've had many personal experiences with those who say that it does take a lot of hard work to overcome the addiction and the stigma. 
It does. And I'm really glad that you're going to have Guy on because I think for so long, um, we there's been an almost um, a universal agreement that we would dehumanize people who are substance users. So drug addicts, and they're not me, you know, we, we there's somebody else that we don't know. And Guy really provides um, a really important viewpoint into somebody who is a loving, caring man who ended up with a substance use disorder and thankfully uh, no longer um, struggles with that, but is really able to give that side of the story. It's everybody. And we see people dying from all walks of life. Um, You know, it's not people living. I mean, some people living on the street, but not the majority. The majority of those who are dying are dying in their homes and in their family homes. And they, uh, many of them do have jobs. So, you know, anybody is at risk. And I think it's really important that we start to acknowledge that this isn't about blaming, but it's about how can we help people in our communities who are struggling with this uh, medical issue. Lisa LaPointe, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. You may have seen Guy Felicella today at a press conference where the latest drug overdose statistics were announced. Guy's a man who spent decades battling addiction and homelessness. He overdosed six times, but eventually he began to rebuild his life in 2013. He got clean. He now has a wife and he has three children. And he is now a peer clinical advisor with the BC Centre on Substance Use. Guy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. And I want to say congrats on the birth of your new son, baby Leo. Oh, thank you very much. How old is he now? Uh, he's just about, he's just over a month now. Oh, doing that's well, very, everybody's, yeah, he's doing fine. Fantastic. <laughs> hey, well, hey, I imagine that you must think of your kids when you're doing your advocacy work, thinking of, of what kind of city you want them to grow up in. Oh, I mean, I think of not just my kids, but everybody's kids. I think of everybody. I think, you know, we really have, you know, a a system in place that's obviously not working and uh, it it needs to be fixed and needs to be corrected and, you know, needs to be uh, addressed with some urgency in order for us to actually move out of it. What are some major issues that need to be addressed that are not being addressed right now and thus contributing to the statistics that we saw today? Well, it's just, it's the contaminated drug market. Um, we just haven't had, uh, you know, a bold uh, response with bold action um, to address it. And so what we have is, you know, we kind of dance around um, the issue of it. You know, we implement, you know, OPSs and SCSs. Those are great. But I mean, really, we just need a targeted response to the toxic drug supply. And, you know, people that are dying, it's, I mean, the, the the statistics are just shocking. Fifty six percent of the people die in a private residence. And then, you know, you have 28 percent that are dying in uh, SROs and shelters and et cetera. And I, I mean, you basically have uh, created so much stigma and discrimination towards substance users that they just don't have the ability to reach out. And until we actually look at, you know, first addressing the toxic drug supply and then stop criminalizing people who use drugs, um, you know, will there be some change? Yeah, you know, we just got off the phone with BC Chief Coroner Lisa Lapointe, who said that one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenge in BC's overdose crisis, is the stigma of drug use. Horrendous. I mean, I don't, I don't know of any other, uh, you know, person, uh, you know, 
that just drug use and is so stigmatizing, it makes it challenging for people to reach our help, challenging for people that have infections to even go to the hospital. I mean, you have to, and even challenging for people to reach out, even if they're struggling with addiction, to even go into recovery. So you really have to look at where does this stigma come from, and it actually comes from the war on drugs and, and prohibition. You know, people often believe that if we ended prohibition, more people would use drugs. That's absolutely, the data doesn't support that. Um, you know, people, uh, we have a regulated supply of uh, alcohol. Imagine if that was contaminated. One in every three bottles of, of alcohol was contaminated. I, I'm pretty sure the public would demand it being fixed. Um, but, you know, we, we're just a society that really modifies our brains with drugs, and we've just picked which drugs are socially acceptable and which drugs are not. And, uh, you know, 56% of people dying in a private residence. This isn't just a, you know, a downtown east side issue. This is a everybody issue. This is everybody that uses drugs has, uh, you know, uh, an issue with the contaminated drug supply. And people are dying at such an alarming rate. Well, how did it feel for you to stand up on that podium today? And I know that you've done advocacy work for some time now, but here you are standing up on a podium with TV cameras pointed at you talking about overdose death statistics when not too long ago, you could have been one of those statistics. Yeah, it's for me, extremely emotional inside, especially not only for myself, but just the amount of lives that I've witnessed in my lifetime of people that have lost their lives to this crisis has really uh, impacted me in, in many ways. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's disheartening and I'm so saddened. And, you know, when I'm getting up there and I, you know, I don't see, you know, 175 uh, numbers, I see 175 people and, you know, people with names and people that had dreams and people that had hopes and they're gone. And, and for me, that's, um, you know, the hardest thing for me is to is is to, to, to see that and to know how challenging it is just for people that are struggling to actually reach out to get the help that they need. And and then on, on top of that, um, you know, we, we really have to look at our issues with poverty and homelessness. It's so complex and so challenging. And I think moving forward, what we have to do is we have to have a safer regulated supply because we can't monitor the contaminated drug market because it's all hidden by organized crime. So, I mean, there's, there's a sign that uh, shows that, you know, if we know this and, you know, governments continue, federal governments, uh, you know, continue to allow this to happen, it really shows where um, that they don't really care too much about the people that are using the drugs and they're allowing uh, organized crime to actually profit immensely off of it. Uh-huh. Guy Felicella, thank you so much for the conversation today. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. I'll admit right off the top, technology is not my specialty by any means. I've always subscribed to that old method of if the tube TV isn't working, you just kind of whack it on the top with your hand a few times to get it fixed. Or if your radio reception isn't very great, you just put some tinfoil on the antenna and, and hope the signal clears that's about the extent of my IT abilities. So when I'd heard about 5G in the news, as many of us have, I thought that it was limited to the context of simply telecommunications. Very fast, very efficient phone mobile network. 
It turns out that I was wrong. Let's learn a little bit more now about 5G technology so that next time this conversation is being had in the news, we have a little bit more context, a little bit more info to keep in our back pockets. Joining us now is Mike Lowe, BCIT Telecommunications Systems Technician Instructor. Mike, thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. Okay, can you clear it up for me in its very basic form? What is 5G? Well, I mean, it's similar in some regards to 4G. So, you know, it's a it's a, a network that handles, you know, a vast amount of data. Um, it's going to be faster. It's going to be quicker. It's going to be more reliable. So, you know, it's it's got all that working for it. Um, what's going to really set it apart, though, is the applications that are going to be um, used by 5G. Like this is going to be a real shakeup for indus- like a lot of different industries, I think, um, in ways that, you know, we haven't really seen in the cellular technology before. Right. And I think that's the part that surprised me because I'd always thought of 5G in the context of telecommunications as in it's going to make my phone faster. I'm going to be able to use the apps a bit more efficiently on yeah. my phone. But there's a broader context where this can be used as well beyond even just mobile phones. I mean, for example, right. it can be implemented in autonomous vehicle technology. Right. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So, you know, you're an I'm autonomous sure. vehicle guy. Uh, I'm not a big fan of gridlock traffic. So <laughs> I am definitely hoping that, you know, this could be one of that, you know, that, uh, that technology that kind of unlocks that. Um, I don't know. It feels like autonomous vehicles have kind of stalled out a little bit in the last year or so. You know, Teslas are getting pretty close. Um, but I think the the goal of all this is to get to a point where um, cars are driving themselves. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that's required to do that safely. I mean, you can do it now. Like, I think there's enough tech to, out there to do it now. It's to do it safely um, and reliably. And I think, you know, if there's any technology that's going to get us to that point, it's definitely going to be 5G. Uh, the functionality for autonomous vehicles has been designed with this network. So, uh, you know, if it, even if like some of the safety features eliminate some, like a lot of accidents, that'd be great. Um, but wow, I, I'd be really happy if gridlock traffic was a thing of the past and accidents were a thing of the past. We'll have to see if we get to that point, but you know, 5G is going to get us a lot closer to that. Oh, you and me both, brother. But so 5G technology, that's the technology that could push us over the edge and create autonomous vehicles that are actually able to drive themselves. Yeah. Um, like, uh, you know, the protocols that we have in place for moving data it has vehicle data in mind. So, Again, this is going to be, we're just rolling out 5G right now. So, you know, we're going to go through uh, a build phase over the next year or so. Um, So a lot of jobs just to build out these 5G networks. It'll be interesting to see what happens once these networks are in place and all that functionality gets unlocked uh, because there's a lot. Yeah. How could 5G technology contribute to new jobs? Well, Autonomous vehicles, um, so there's just a growth factor there in, in that market. Um, but there's a lot of different other markets that this could possibly touch on. Um, and I'm not really sure exactly which industries are going to benefit the most or which ones are going to grow the most. 
but you know they are targeting things like like smart cities. Um, so some functionality, I'm not really sure exactly what they're going to um, specifically utilize in something like a smart city. Um, healthcare seems to be one that seems to have been touched on with 4G networks. So I know that 5G is really going to expand on that. And that, I think that you know, there's a lot of potential there for a lot of growth in, in that market, like um, telemedicines, um, even you know, first responders, I think, are going to get some benefits out of uh, 5G networks. Is this um, something, too, like a surgeon could perform a surgery remotely? <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, again, I'm not really sure where we get to the end point with some of this. Like, there's so much potential. Uh, but It sounds like your imagination can really run wild with what the yeah. potential of 5G technology is in something like healthcare. Yeah, like, a, well, like, just from, like, a first responder standpoint, it it sure would be something to have um, a virtual doctor that, you know, rides along in the ambulance with first responders. Uh, like, who knows where we go with, with a lot of this stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, like, there is, there is definitely room for technological explosive growth in a lot of industries. Um, smart cities, autonomous vehicles, um, Medicare. Um, what about in shipping? Yeah, so... I think uh, supply chains has been uh, top of mind in the last few months. Um, so, this, you know, again, this will be interesting to see how that kind of grows that market, how, how closer we can get to, um, you know, better, better control over our supply chains. Um, so, you know, shipping is a big part of, the, of our supply chain. So, you know, that ability to be able to, uh, you know, do things like have uh, a manifest for, for a crate, um, you know, we've already got that in place, but, you know, looking at the quality of like each item in, inside these, these containers, you know, that's something that 5G is going to unlock as well. Like just knowing the, like, I'm just using my imagination here, but like, you know, you could in theory um, monitor the temperature of foods in its entire transit from, you know, point A to point B. So, We'll be see, it'll be interesting to see, um, again, what, what, you know, how that kind of um, grows that market. And it sounds like it could address so many inefficiencies in that current industry. Right. And, you know, one thing that I'm kind of interested in, too, is just seeing how this kind of shakes up scheduling, too. We're always used to things kind of running on a schedule. Um, so it'll be interesting if this kind of gets us further into that kind of on-demand kind of um, uh, lifestyle that we seem to be kind of eh, using here and there, um, you know, uh, like, for instance, like, I don't know, I could have a smart waste basket um, or a smart garbage can. Okay, you tell know, me more we, about the smart garbage can. I like this well, idea so far. <laughs> yeah, like... Uh, Instead of like scheduling things um, to be picked up on specific times on specific days, how about we just pick things up when they're when they need to be picked up, like when it's full. Oh, let's wait till it's full. Let's send somebody out there, empty the wastebasket or the the garbage can or recycling bin or or green waste or whatever um, on kind of an on demand situation instead of instead of scheduling. It's like who knows what's going to happen with. You know, just subtle things like that. Um, so, 
yeah, again, we'll just have to see where, where things kind of go with, with a lot of these, these different technologies. And again, like, it's just going to add to technological growth. And, and again, different markets that we're, we're kind of maybe not used to um, coming from a cellular technology. You have me imagining now that my garbage can could soon be driving itself to the dump. <laughs> oh, autonomous. Yeah, okay, so now we can start <laughs> to merge technologies. That, well, that'd be something like... Uh, who knows like uh, where they're going to go with a lot of the stuff. There's a lot of potential there. And um, there's a lot of functionality that I think uh, a lot of these service providers are, are hoping gets used. So it'll be up to industry, I suppose, to kind of take advantage of a lot of that, that potential that's, that's now there. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. And what about in a very traditional industry, such as agriculture, is there room for 5g there? Huh. Yeah, so I've seen a lot about, um, I guess it's already um, somewhat in place. Uh, I'm, I'm not really an expert on anything agricultural as far as like how they're implementing technology. But I thought it was interesting that they were, you know, again, you're kind of doing things as they need to be done instead of scheduling things. So, you know, I, I suppose uh, just kind of um, all the things that go into uh or, you know, just allowing agriculture to to grow. Um, there's a lot of drone technology that I see starting to be to be used, I guess, instead of like, you know, I guess you'd be sending planes to, to crop dust or, or whatever. Now you're starting to see a lot more drone technology. And I don't know, like, do we get to the point where drones are actually out there? Um, uh, Seeding the fields? Yeah, like who knows? Um, so that'll be interesting. And, and, you know, again, it's not like that's going to take away jobs. You're still going to need um, people to look after all that infrastructure. So, well, yeah. I guess that's the other side of this. Should people be afraid that instead of creating jobs, that 5G technology takes away jobs? Well, I always, there's always shifts that I see kind of occurring. Um, like, I, I just don't see the evidence that, um, you know, you know, it's taking away jobs on mass. Um, yeah, it, it definitely, there's potential to disrupt certain certain jobs. Um, but I'm always, I don't know. There, there always seems to be more jobs as a result of technology than it taking away at this point. Now, I'm not sure if that's like going to be always the case, um, but. It sure seems like that's the case. It's been the case for, for a few decades, and you know I, I can't see that changing um, 10 years from now. So, But you know, I, 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 we'll have to see how things kind of go with that. Um, again, if, if things are just shifting, opens things up to being a little bit more creative with a lot of these uh, different industries. And I, I bet what we're kind of – what we have envisioned in a lot of these industries – might be totally different in 10 years. And I suppose as a BCIT instructor, you are obviously seeing students coming into your classroom who will eventually benefit from jobs in this field. Well, that's the hope um, for sure. Uh, and, you know, the best way to to get jobs in this career is to, to understand it as much as we can. So, you know, we try to, um, we go through a, just all the fundamental technologies that go into this stuff, because it is kind of like an iterative process going from 
um, one, one technology to another. You know, as far as uh, the underlying technology, not a whole lot really changes that rapidly. It seems to be that we, you know, seem to um, just we we're just using more and more of it and like 5g seems to be this real summation of a lot of different technologies and yeah uh there's a if if you understand geez any of the technologies in 5g i mean you could really branch out into into all kinds of different fields i mean like this this pulls in stuff from um well all the infrastructure that's in place for you and I to have a conversation right now and all the infrastructure that, you know, people have been using to, to have their zoom meetings or to socially distance and whatnot. Right. Um, like all that technology is a part of, of a 5g network. And, um, you know, we're going to need a lot more people and since we've been putting a lot more pressure on those sorts of networks. Um, I think that's something that we have invested interest in making sure that it's reliable and that it keeps growing. So, you know, I think this is a, a really good field for, for students to, uh, to get a career in. Right on. Well, I hope that one of your students one day creates that autonomous garbage can for me. Mike, thank <laughs> you, you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm sure you're familiar with, or at least have heard of, Portugal's model on decriminalization of drugs. It's commonly referred to when discussing solutions for cities like ours that has a big drug problem. Essentially, that country had a huge issue with HIV rates among injecting drug users, the highest in all of Europe. The solution was to decriminalize hard drugs. And again, this is kind of in a nutshell. They saw a big improvement in their case numbers as a result of that and other measures. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up that part of the story is because a few years back, the fellow who essentially was the architect of that model was here in Vancouver. He was visiting our downtown east side. He wanted to see what the issue was here and what solutions could possibly be. And when he was touring the downtown east side, I had a chance to speak with him. And I asked him what surprised him most about Vancouver's problem. And you know what he said? He said the number of older people who are on the streets here and who are using drugs, the number of elderly who are homeless. Now, I'm sure that you've seen this too. Many middle-aged or elderly people who are on the streets, not just on the downtown east side, but in communities all around BC. Researchers at Simon Fraser's University's Department of Gerontology are looking into this. They're investigating why homelessness is increasing and how that's impacting Canada's aging demographic. SFU gerontology professor Sarah Canham joins us now. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you, Nikki. What inspired you to start this research? Well, I think as you were alluding to a minute ago, it's it's a it's an issue that we are seeing more and more on uh, not only on the streets, but we are seeing more older adults who are becoming housing insecure, who are in hospitals and are seeking services from many of our social service agencies and the agencies themselves, as well as the, the folks in the hospital, are, are, are finding this a bit shocking and thinking, what is this new demographic that we're seeing and how can we go about having a better safety net 
so that fewer people become homeless in the first place. I imagine that the the pandemic is probably worsening these conditions as well. Yes, absolutely. We see that the the already very unstable housing market is really imploding because we have people losing their their jobs, which may people many people live paycheck to paycheck, which keeps them in their homes. However, when you are unable to go to your job or when you lose your job because of the pandemic, we're now putting people in very precarious situations. And and it's, I would imagine it's, we're just seeing the beginning of, of what will be some, some significant ramifications for, for years to come unless we put supports in place and, and do a bit, bit better job advocating for the needs of, of those who are older and, and both job insecure, income insecure, which, which leads to housing insecurity. Now, your research is to identify key issues related to homelessness that seniors may be experiencing, as well as providing some feedback for creating policies that will hopefully support those individuals. Have you come across any uh, policies yet that you think really need to be targeted based on your research? Right. Well, well, based on our research, which is it, it is really exciting, we do have a new study that has been funded through the Canadian Mortgage Housing Association in partnership with the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. So we do have uh, a national network of, of, of people who are really looking at this issue. We do know many of the pathways that people have to, to become homeless, you know, or already talked about the issues of housing insecurity via um, income insecurity and job insecurity. And really what we are hoping that we can get at with this, with this new study we're starting is, is looking at those models that are already in place that have been really successful and see whether it makes sense to promote these as best practices in the field. So, for instance, we have a great partnership with a local organization, the Senior Services Society, which is based out in New New Westminster, and they have a program called the Temporary Housing Program. And and because of, of funding, they are only allocated a certain amount of money. However, if we can suggest this and, and put evidence, provide evidence that this is a promising practice or a best practice, then perhaps this is going to be a good model to suggest for other areas, uh, both within Vancouver and across Canada. And I imagine as well that your research will be able to provide information as to what demographics are being affected in the elderly homeless population and how best to serve those demographics. Right. And we have to really remember that, uh, you know, this is when we think of older adults who are experiencing homelessness, those who we sort of define as older are are as young as, as 50 years old. And, and this is because those individuals who have experiences of homelessness have what we call accelerated aging. And so they're the, the ways in which um, their, their, their medical conditions uh, appear as if they are age 65 when really they're, they're age 50. And so there is that gap in services as well for, for those individuals. And, and when we, so when we think about older adults, um, I'm not a huge fan of the term elderly, but when we think of older adults as a group of individuals, we need to recognize that they're, 
this is a large range of individuals who have different, not only ages, but different genders, different sexual orientations, different race, ethnicities. Uh, some have disabilities. Some uh, are, are are immigrants, and 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 many, unfortunately, are 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 indigenous neighbors. And so, so this is a very diverse group of individuals, and there isn't a one one answer to this. And so we have to be thinking about multiple different solutions and really matching people's needs to what will work for them and meeting people where they are at in their process to stable housing. From a a street level, what are some of the main risk factors for homelessness in that older demographic? Well, it's interesting because you you will have many uh, older adults who are at risk for homelessness because they, uh, as we mentioned, as we've already discussed, are living really paycheck to paycheck, and so we see that perhaps there's a um, you know the, the the loss of a spouse who was an income earner or who helped manage finances, and so you know not having enough. Uh, social support services that help our older adults manage their finances and understand the financial implications of certain decisions can be one avenue, sort of having that income insecurity. We also see that older adults have higher rates of of health issues. And, and so as chronic illnesses and disease start to mount, the ability to manage all of the other things that go into managing our day-to-day lives become more and more of a challenge. And so uh, higher costs of, of, of health care and, and, and prescription medications uh, can have a really important uh, role in whether or not someone can maintain housing security. Does this suggest at all a cultural problem, that there isn't a family support network here that can support its, its aging demographic? Why aren't families getting involved? And, and many times people don't might not have families. Maybe they're. I mean, they're, this this is not a. I mean, I, I would be. I would be. Um, I, I would be stretched to say that any one family is going to um, look the same. And so we have individuals who maybe they didn't ever marry or they didn't ever have children. We have families who might have some fractures in relationships over time. We might have older adults who who have outlived all of their family members. And so I think our reliance and our, and our government's reliance and our society's reliance on family being the only answer is, is a bit short-sighted. And we really need to be looking at developing a, what we call a formal social network that can fill in the gaps for those individuals who may not either want to engage with their family or they may not be able to because they, uh, they themselves aren't available or they themselves um, don't have the resources to support their parents or their grandparents. So it really does need to be multiple people at the table to, to provide the, the necessary services and, and to really see that um, break down those issues of ageism and, and, and get at caring for older adults and not just focusing all of our energy on, on supporting those of younger ages. Right. And, and to really identify the plight of some of these older adults, the researchers that you're working with and yourself included are also planning to organize a photo exhibit as well, correct? 
Yes. So this will be something that we we may not see for many years, but we do hope to have as a really uh, good outcome of the work that we're doing. And, and, And so what we're hoping is that through our research, we will work with older adults who have experiences of homelessness who can shed light into their perspective. And really by using their voices uh, and their images, we hope that we can make some shift in how we think about and how we talk about and how we conceptualize housing insecurity and homelessness uh, among older adults, really from their perspective. Well, Sarah, best of luck with your research and thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you, Nikki. Have a great day. At 3 p.m. today, we'll hear what the latest COVID-19 case numbers are in British Columbia. As of yesterday, the number of patients in hospital is now the highest that it's been in two months and a one-day total over this past weekend. 109 new cases on Saturday is the highest number of new cases in one day so far through this whole pandemic. Do you think that the rise in case numbers is somewhat attributed to people not taking the virus as seriously as we did when the province first shut down back in March? Paul Slovic is a psychologist. He works at the University of Oregon, and he's the author of the book, The Perception of Risk. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Nikki. Paul, I was speaking to a friend yesterday who said that when this pandemic began, she locked down everything. Her kids, they weren't allowed to go see their friends. They were washing their hands religiously. They weren't even allowed to see grandma and grandpa. And now she said, I'm actually ready to send my kids back to school again. From a psychologist's perspective, you know, what's going on here? What's going on through through her mind? Why does this happen? How do we go from being on such high alert to eventually kind of waning in our convictions, even if the actual threat, which in this case, of course, Paul, is the pandemic, hasn't improved? Yeah, I think there's a whole bunch of things going on here. Um, you know, fortunately, uh, even though the cases are rising and they're all too high, it's still a uh, uh, fairly uh, low probability uh, incidence of the of the disease. So uh, many people haven't really um, seen the seen uh, ill people up close. Uh, uh, you know, they, many don't know people who've uh, become infected, uh, and so and you don't see it. You look around, and you know this is something that's that's invisible unless you're unless you know someone who has it um, personally. So uh, everything kind of looks uh, looks okay. And, you know, you, you, you do eventually have to go out and start doing things. And when you do that, you find, you know, everything, you don't, you don't uh, feel that you've been at risk. Uh, you, everything seemed to be okay. So uh, this is kind of what we call kind of a desensitization with exposure. I mean, you, you, do, you start to behave a little bit more normally, and uh, it seems to go okay. So you start to uh, relax. You, you're not, uh, you know, you, you don't see any visible evidence that you've done something that puts you at risk, and uh, and you've got some benefit from whatever you had to do when you uh, when you went out and, and started behaving more normally. So those sorts of things lead to a relaxation of our guard. That sounds like the same concept, the same theory or principle that's used in exposure therapy. Uh, yes, yes, it is. Um, you know, a lot of people have, uh, have phobias. You know, they're afraid to go outside or to you know, do other sorts of things that, uh, you know, sort of irrational fears. And, and the way that's treated is you slowly expose the person to what they're afraid of, like, you know, perhaps uh, spiders. Uh, you know, you sort of see a picture of a spider and, and in, while you're in a comfortable uh, uh, environment. 
and you you know you sort of gradually uh, get accommodated to the thing that uh, that uh, frightens you. So the same sort of the same sort of thing happening is that uh, you know if you if you go out and behave normally and and you don't see anything bad happening, you uh, you know you, you think everything's okay. So, you know, my friend, who at first was very, very scared of the pandemic, as I think so many of us were, eventually over time, she uh, approached that fear by going out to the grocery store, taking the kids out to maybe see a friend or two, and over time almost cured herself of her fear. Uh, well, um, I guess that's, that's good in a, in a way, but you, I think you have to... You have to uh, respect what uh, we what we're hearing from the you know the health uh, professionals, the health experts, who uh, who tell us that we need to maintain our uh, our protective behaviors like social distancing and mask wearing and these sorts of things. Uh, so uh, you know that's that's the the danger is that we get so comfortable that we stop doing that. And and there's also kind of related behavioral uh, things going on that that lead us to uh, to be uh, less uh, adherent to the recommendations uh, of, of the professionals, you know, because y- you don't see an immediate benefit from wearing a, ba- a mask or, you know, keeping away from your, your friends. Uh, but you, you feel the cost, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable, maybe the mask or, um, and, you know, and you, and you miss uh, doing, doing things socially with your friends. So you, you feel the cost, uh, but you don't see the benefit. And then if you do, something wrong if you if you stop uh, you know wearing the mask or social distancing you don't you don't feel uh, you don't get a, a punishment for that directly you don't see if you you know uh, any any risk that you've caused or that someone has caused to, to you right right away it you know you don't get punished um, and and you get the benefit of being liberated from these things so so what we call the reinforcement principles are just backwards uh, here they they uh, reward us for doing the wrong thing and they don't reward us for doing the right thing so over time we we tend to uh, be be less uh, uh, adherent to what is recommended um, and that's a that's a problem so how do health professionals solve this problem then because you have people who are uh, out in public and they're realizing okay well you know nothing bad happened today so they're getting more comfortable they're overcoming that fear and then you said at the same time you know not wearing a mask every once in a while maybe it feels good so they you know tend to do it even less and that behavior is becoming reinforced i mean this that you're describing is it's a psychological nightmare for health professionals isn't it well, it's yes, and it's a problem for the rest of us as well. Obviously, because yeah. so many people, a lot of people, are getting uh, getting ill. So I think I think we see that it's not just a medical problem; it's a it's a political problem. Um, uh, what what we see is that you need to there needs to be some pressure to uh, to uh, enforce uh, th- these recommendations, and and uh, you know not to if you just kind of tell people, warn people, and then you back away. Well, we see from what I've been talking about, it's going to work for a while, and then it's going to diminish, uh, and, and, and people are, are going to pay the, pay the price. So I think there has to be um, uh, enforcement of, of uh, these, uh, these regulations, which a lot of people uh, resent and don't like. So then you get into that, uh, that aspect of the political sort of thing where you know, people – um, believe that uh, government should back off and not, you know, they don't want to be uh, uh, 
affected by the nanny state or whatever it is. So they, they want to be free to to make their own decisions about this. Well, um, that's uh, that's okay if their decisions didn't inter, you know affect other people. So again, you get into a, a battle as to how much how much uh, uh, regulation and enforcement you want to have in in, in a particular uh, community or society. And, and of course, there are different. You know, different uh, com- communities have different uh, values there, so you have to take that into account. So, so it is a, it is a nightmare, and I don't know about uh, Canada. I heard the statistics just now about how these cases are going up, and and uh, you know it, we've been de- dealing with this for a long time. They should not be going up anymore. Uh, and the U.S., of course, has uh, we we have fa- famously uh, you know not enforced uh, these. Uh, uh, recommendations and and we're paying a, a heavy price for that you know the highest uh, uh, number of cases and, and mortality uh, in the world and while it's gone down slightly it's still way above uh, where uh, most other places are so I think we have to decide are we going to you know uh, uh, behave ourselves even although it's kind of unpleasant uh, for a little while and, and do what it takes to get this uh, incidents of virus down to a low level, or we're going to just uh, keep going on as it is, and that's going to keep uh, keep schools closed. It's going to keep workplaces closed uh, because we haven't uh, adhered to the regulations and recommendations. And is this why as well that we see different behavior in different demographics? In an older demographic, those who are more at risk of having negative consequences if they catch this this virus tend to follow the rules a little bit more closer from what we've seen, certainly wearing masks more often and so forth, whereas now we have a younger demographic who aren't following the rules at all. Is it because they feel that there is either a perceived or a literal physical distance from the risk? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. First, um, younger people are more... Um, more affected by the you know the social benefits of you know interacting with their with their friends and others and and so uh, you know they are uh, a little more resistant to giving up those those uh, those kind of benefits. Also, being younger, they you know they're young, they're healthy. They they uh, there's perhaps a sense of of uh, invulnerability uh, to, to 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 young people. We all, and and we also we we know that uh, that the young people value uh, you know uh, rewards. Uh, they weigh rewards more heavily than the, the you know uh, negative or, or cost kind of things. It's well well established. So. Uh, these things lead uh, young people to be, you know, uh, willing to uh, to take more risks. I mean, it doesn't feel like risk to them, but uh, they they, are, they do take more more risk. And and for a while, they were told that you know that uh, they were at less risk than older people. But the latest data seems to show that young people uh, can uh, be seriously affected by the virus as well. So that's a problem. Paul, thank you so much for talking to us. You're welcome.